All right, let's bow in a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for this gathering as we always are to be able to come together on the Lord's Day to sing Your praise, to read Your Word, to recount the various truths of Scripture, to bring them freshly to our minds. I ask You, Lord, now that uh, You give me strength to proclaim Your Word, proclaim it with clarity and precision, that You would be my strength, and that uh, You would use the message this morning to encourage Your people, as we know that we are always in need of it. Lord, we do need You, and as we just sang, we can come to You by faith, knowing that the Gospel will prevail, not only in our midst, but in the entire created order. For that we are grateful, and for that we anticipate great and wonderful things as your Spirit empowers us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles, everyone, to the book of Second Peter. Book of Second Peter. Continuing in our study, the overall picture here, of course, is the day of the Lord, and we haven't talked a lot about that specifically or even have mentioned that phrase, but uh, we will come to that, I believe, next Lord's Day. We will talk specifically about the day of the Lord, but just so we have the greater context in mind, this is what we've been studying through, this awesome day of the Lord that in Peter's mind is fast approaching. The first section of this covers verses 3 through 9, so I invite you to follow along as I read Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 3-9. through nine. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years." and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. What a great uh, passage before us today. And i got to admit, ever since we started our study, not only of Second Peter, but of 1 Peter, I've been really looking forward to this passage. This is a fun one to wrestle with. Um, even if we can't tackle every single issue exhaustively, I believe it is a very important text to understand. And so here we are. And so for the last two Sundays, we have entered into a study that I think is very important overall to our understanding of biblical doctrine, specifically as it pertains to eschatology. And no matter what stripe of eschatology you may fall into, or under the day of the Lord, the very theme that Peter is addressing here, plays an indispensable role 
in our understanding of what is popularly termed the end times. It is very common to see an ebb and flow of this, especially in American evangelicalism. When, when there are rumblings, especially politically or economically, in the Middle East or even Europe, we're seeing that now, there is a lot of talk regarding the end times. A lot of excitement is stirred up regarding the return of Christ. And fitting within this framework is the question of the day of the Lord. When will it happen? What will it bring? And what does that mean both for the believer and the unbeliever? And I believe Second Peter actually answers all of these questions quite thoroughly. And as we go through this passage, we can probably understand them piecemeal, right? So there's no one verse that is going to reveal all that we need to know. But as we take this entire passage as a whole, even down to verse 13, we will start to get an increasingly clear picture of what Peter is communicating regarding the day of the Lord, and as he says, also, the coming of the day of God. So there is something particularly ominous and yet exciting about that, where God will reveal Himself in a particular way through His Son that will bring both judgment and salvation. And so we want to understand this. God's judgment, but also God's plan for His people. These are very exciting things, and God would not have us be ignorant of these things. There is a certain understanding that is to be gleaned from what has been revealed very clearly in His Word. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't want to be ignorant of those things. We want to understand them, and I trust they will bring great encouragement and excitement as well to the church. And so our text for this day, to today primarily is going, to be, is going to be covering verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But to understand the context... We want to go back a few verses. We want to understand that this is part of a whole, right? So we don't want to go into verse 8 without first understanding the overall context. Now remember, according to Peter, something very significant is happening. These are last days, according to his view, and with these last days are mockers, scoffers, which are coming from unbelievers, but mostly even apostates that perhaps at one point or another identified with the new covenant people of God. And yet, a time has come where they have stopped believing in the Gospel. They have stopped believing in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to arrive, to come in some point in that generation and judge and also deliver His people. So what Peter does in this chunk of text is he, he gives them an initial answer by explaining why this mocking is occurring. Why are they scoffing? And the primary reason, of course, is that this promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet happened. And as he notes, the fathers, that is, New Testament fathers, the, 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 initial, the, the apostles, those who first preached the gospel are now dying. And so they are calling into question the very promise that Jesus made, that He would come and execute judgment, as He says in Matthew 24, on this generation. We say generation, give or take, is about 40 years. 40 years is fast approaching. The apostles are dying, even though he said they would be present. So now, what is to happen in regards to that? What is the church supposed to think because this promised return of Jesus has not yet occurred? How do we respond to this apparent delay? So that we, again, the churches from Peter's perspective, do not also call into question the reality of Christ's impending return. 
So know one thing very importantly that Peter does not do. First, he's explained why. He's done that. Here's what's going on. And, it is, and certain things escape their notice, of course, and we'll get into that to review it again. But he does not say to these scoffers, oh, you got it all wrong. Jesus' is coming is not going to happen in our own time. It's going to happen maybe even centuries from now. And that is a very common interpretation of this text. That we are still on that prophetic clock. We are still waiting for this event, the, the, the coming of Christ to return. And as we see certain uh, sections of, of society sort of peter out of control morally, at least from a human point of view, that means that we're in the last days, and that means that Jesus is going to arrive. And I think that Peter isn't saying that at all. Remember, he's writing from a first century perspective, and I believe he actually doubles down. He doubles down when he says, so let's look at our text very carefully. In verse 5, he says, it escapes their notice that the world was formed by water and the Word, by the Word of God's power. And then, of course, dividing the waters below, according to creation narrative, from the waters above. That's creation activity that Peter is describing. That pre-flood world. He says it escapes their notice that this is what happened. And then, of course, that world was destroyed by water and the Word during the flood. So you have creation and you have destruction or judgment. So, of course, the Word that has the power to create also has the power to destroy. Right? The Word of God commands power. And God can do what He wills with it. And note that both of these things, both creation and the flood, were things that happened suddenly, and as Peter acknowledges, they can surely happen again, even though these scoffers and unbelievers deny it. Because, of course, their claim is that, oh, we don't see any signs of this, so it's not going to happen. So even though God tarried for 120 years, that was the countdown to the flood, when the flood actually came, it came very swiftly. Even though life went on as usual, again, we could, marriage, planting, sowing, reaping, having children, building houses, building culture. The only sign they, did, the only sign they actually had was this giant wooden boat being constructed on Noah's lawn. But then, of course, when judgment came, it came suddenly, it came catastrophically, and it came without remedy. If you weren't in the boat with Noah when the rains came, you didn't have a chance. Judgment was already on you. And so, the entire world, save Noah and his family, were condemned and died in the waters of judgment. Killed by the water and the Word. Now this time... From Peter's perspective, it is going to happen again, only it is going to happen through the Word and <clears throat> fire. So we didn't cover this verse much in depth last Lord's Day, but take a look at verse 7. He says, but by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. So next week we'll get into more detail what heavens and earth actually refers to. I believe it refers to the, the, the unjust and godless order in which Peter is living. The order in which he is preaching, to which he is preaching. Note that it says this, they're being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So when judgment visits this heaven and the earth, what is the purpose? Judgment of 
ungodly men. So I don't think he's actually talking about planet Earth. I don't believe Peter has in view here some some cosmic conflagration where the whole universe is going to be burnt to a crisp down to the atomic level. I believe he is going to bring down a particular rebellious order. So think back to what happened during the flood. Did God completely obliterate planet Earth down to the atomic level? No, not at all. In a sense, the Earth was destroyed. But in particular, the purpose of the flood was to judge and destroy ungodly men. It was to cleanse creation of an ungodly order and a corrupt line. One where men only devised evil continually. So it's not unclear to us why God sent the floodwaters. It was to destroy ungodly men. And so that is why Peter uses this uses this as a, in, in connection to the judgment he is going to bring. Just as he destroyed ungod, the ungodly in a flood, so he will, as Peter sees it, destroy the ungodly by fire. So the word in fire is being withheld for a time. It's what Peter calls a reservation until it is visited on the wicked order that from Peter's perspective now afflicts churches throughout the Roman Empire. Remember, you have this sort of ungodly apostate combination between unbelieving Jews who reject the Lord Jesus as Messiah and as Lord, and then you have a partnership between them and the Roman Empire. And together, they are persecuting the true Israel, that is, the people of God, the church. And so Peter says, regardless of their mocking, regardless of their unbelief, do not let that sway you in terms of your certainty of Christ's judgment on this unbelieving order, on this unbelieving age. Be certain of His promise to judge. And so we find that Peter does not give his detractors an inch. He does not legitimize their scoffing. He doesn't skirt the issue. But he says that judgment is both certain and soon, even though from a human perspective and the discouragement of some churches, time is running out. We are dealing with a timeline. And remember, throughout biblical history, the Lord is faithful to His timeline. If He says when something is going to happen, it's going to happen at that appointed time. If the Lord says that something is going to happen, that it's going to happen, we can rest assured that it will. And it does. God is consistent, but He is also timely. However, there seems to be some discouragement within the churches that Peter does not want them to be discouraged by. And it has to do with this time running out. And I would say that the problem they're facing is often the problem with us, right? It's, it's a problem that many churches face, is that whether individually or collectively, instead of looking at things, especially prophecy, through the eyes of God and through the eyes of Scripture, we look at, we look at it through, through carnal eyes, through human eyes. We see things the way that man sees them. We don't see God's perspective. We are stuck on man's perspective. And that's what's so encouraging about a text like this, is that we are reminded of God's perspective. How he views things. You look at verse 8. That's exactly what is happening. Peter is encouraging his people by reminding them of how God sees things. And so we are to see things as God sees things. And only how God sees things. 
You've got to remember, God has none of the limitations that we do that constantly seem to plague our spiritual vision. You think about what we're affected by, and here's, here's just a variety of things. I think one thing that's obvious is we are affected by a lack of knowledge. Has it ever occurred to you, this may come as a shock to some of you, but you do not know everything. You do not have comprehensive knowledge of the mysteries of God. Sometimes you don't have the most basic knowledge of the most basic things. It's part of our humanity. We have limitations of what we know, and even if we know them, we often fail to apply them correctly. But God is not affected by a lack of knowledge. He knows everything. That's why the prophet asked, who has is, who is known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who can go up to God and say, you know, Lord, I'd like to offer my perspective. I'm not really sure I agree with the way you did things. Yeah, I'm not really sure about that flood thing, Lord. You know, that was a bit harsh. What do we know? Right. Where were we before the Lord laid the foundations of the earth? Right. God knows everything. And so it is of immense benefit to his people to inquire as to what God knows and to how he sees things. Here's another thing. We are also, affle- we are also affected by our own flesh. That is the very catalyst for remaining in immaturity. We, we strive to be mature. Right? We strive to bear the image faithfully of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are afflicted by the flesh. God knows no such affliction. God is perfect. God is always right. He is always true to Himself. He will never change His mind or go back on His Word. That is to say, God is not fickle. He is not wishy-washy. Here's another thing that I think is important, both to the church then and the church now, is that we are, affic- we are affected or afflicted often by individualism in that we fail to see the grand perspective of God. Sometimes we think that, that the universe simply revolves around us, that my experiences, the way I see things, my perspective is what matters the most. I am only concerned chiefly with what God, with what God is doing in me and through me. Failing to consider His grand design of cosmic redemption, the fact that God also works through other people, and that He also works primarily through the agency of His church, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. He works with us on a corporate level. That the body of Christ is to stand at the front lines and faithfully proclaim the Gospel. And sometimes, we become so insular We are ignorant of the fact that God works through other things, through other means, other than simply us. Than simply the individual. God, of course, is not affected by that, first and foremost, because as He has the right to, He does all things for His own glory. He's God. So we can't accuse Him of being selfish or proud. Because He has the right, by His own sovereign power, to do as He pleases to save as He pleases, to direct history as He pleases, and no one can come to Him and ask, what have you done? As we are prone to do. But it's a good reminder, a text like this, for, the, for individuals in the church to look outside of themselves and to try to grasp the bigger picture of God's redemptive plan and saving efforts. And here's one more thing, and I think this may be perhaps most pertinent to this text that we're coming to today is that we are affected by time. That's one of our greatest limitations. 
You know, life really is a vapor. We have one life to live. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when the Lord is going to take us home. It's a great limitation. And yet we find that God is transcendent, right? He is not bound by time, and we'll get into that more in a bit. But time remains one of those things that greatly affects us. And I think some of us, even even at a young age, we look back at all the time we wasted, and we wish we had done more of this and less of that. We wish we hadn't squandered and wasted so much time and resources. And when we mature in Christ, sometimes we look back and say, man, I, I have wasted so much time. I wish I had redeemed that time to commit to the Lord. To be productive, right? To be a productive Christian. To love God and love my neighbor. To be a blessing to others. To take the gifts that He's given me and use those to advance the kingdom of God. We are affected by time. We have limitations. We have to rest. We have to work, right? We have all these responsibilities. God has responsibilities too, but He executes them perfectly and with great power. And so we can carry those things to help shape our understanding of what Peter has in view here. But this leads us to the second overall prevailing point of what we have titled the certainty of Christ's return. This is part three. The certainty of Christ's return. And of course, the first thing we are certain of is Christ's promise to judge. That's the first part. That's verses 3-7. through seven. And now we come to the second part. In that, we are also certain of Christ's power to save. Now, we've often spoken about the juxtaposition, the relationship of both the judgment and salvation of Jesus. We've talked a lot about how we often see salvation in the context of judgment, and it's no different here. So why don't we, without further ado, get into this text? Listen to what Peter says. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That's a warning. Notice what Peter says earlier in this text. In verse 5, he says, it escapes their notice. What have we characterized regarding the scoffers? That they can't really claim ignorance. This is a willful ignorance. We've called this being stupid on purpose. But they should be able to tell the signs of judgment. They should believe the Word of God and repent. They should be able to look at history and know that God is anything but inactive. Especially, remember, we we, we talked about the fact that many of these detractors are Jewish. They should be able to look at their own history and say, wow, we we can't look at this and say things have just gone on as they were. Because we have a history in which the Lord our God is immensely involved. We can hardly say that things are just continuing on as usual without any interruption, without any indication that God is going to judge. And he's saying to these believers, don't be like scoffers. Don't be stupid on purpose. Do not be willfully ignorant as they are. Don't be stupid concerning God. See, these unbelievers are the ones who are judged. They are the ones who are cursed. Yet you, he says, you are the beloved. And as God's beloved, that is, as His sheep, hear His voice. Listen to this Word. So that you are not caught off guard. So that you are not 
ignorant concerning what God reveals of Himself. Paul frames it this way, and I believe it's 1 Thessalonians, I want to say 4 or 5. But, but how does he characterize the saints in, in the church of Thessalonica? He says, but you are not of the night, that the day should overtake you like a thief. Right? Remember your new nature in Christ. You are not of the night, you are of the day. So you have the light, the light of the gospel exposing things, exposing the truth. Do not let the day overtake you like a thief. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. So what he's going to do, he is going to give the saints God's perspective of why the coming of the Lord seems to be delayed. Why is the Lord tarrying? He is going to explain it to them in the context, of course, is salvation, as we will see. And this is a major theme in Scripture. We know that God is holy. We know that He is justice. We know that He is just. But don't let this escape your notice that the Lord is Savior. He is the one who saves. In Psalm 3.8, we read this very simple statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, we're a church here that uh, teaches the doctrines of grace. And, and summed up in one sentence, that's what we believe. That salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His prerogative, it is His right, and it is only the working of His power that brings salvation. That's all of Him and all of His grace. That much is made so clear in Scripture. We turn to Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 12. This is one of the reasons we call this book the Gospel according to Isaiah, because there's so much good news. Even though there's judgment, judgment pronounced on Judah, the light of salvation pierces that darkness and is proclaimed to those with ears to hear. Now in Isaiah chapter 12, we read this. Behold, verse 2, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. I mean, what a beautiful image we have there. The springs of salvation. Abundant, overflowing, life-giving, refreshing, sustaining. All given by God. So even in the midst of proclaimed judgment upon Israel, we have this great proclamation of salvation. That God will save His own. He will, he will spare His sheep. He will take care of them and He will see them through. We have another good passage as well. If you ever get a chance to read through the 40s in Isaiah, some really good stuff. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 43.11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides Me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you, so you are My witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of My hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God is Savior. And woe to the man who looks for a Savior anyone else, anywhere else and in anyone else. I am it, He says. There is no Savior beside Me. Turn again in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer... That's His plan to redeem Israel. The Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside Me. 
Go down to verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Rock. Something solid. Immovable. Secure. Unassailable. Such is our salvation in Christ. There is no other rock. And don't insult God. Don't insult His grace by supposing that there is another option. The question is rhetorical. Is there any other rock? No. One more in Isaiah 45. Verse 21. Declare and set forth your case, says the Lord. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. Isn't that amazing? There is none except me. God is both righteous and a Savior. Great verse that looks forward to how God actually accomplishes that. How can God save sinners and remain righteous? Well, He sends His only Son to take upon Himself the sins of His people so that He can be both just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus Christ. So God is Savior. And we are not to be ignorant of His power to save. Rather, we are to be certain of it. We are to have that as a priority amongst the assembly. To see Christ's power to save. Is the arm of the Lord too short that He is unable to save? Surely it is not. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. It's one of these things that Peter pauses and says, hey, don't want you guys to miss this. It's so important. It's vital to your perseverance as a church because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of temptation. And of course, we can learn from this. This is one of those timeless statements. Doesn't want us to be ignorant. Consider things that are said regarding this. In Romans 11.25, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, right? I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is he trying to keep them from here? The church. He's trying to keep them from pride. The context, of course, is whether God still intends to keep His promise to save Israel. And of course, through the Gospel, He is keeping that promise. So it's, He's warning against these the, the church composed of Jews and Gentiles, specifically the Roman church, hey, don't be proud. Do not exalt yourself over, over the Jews. If He cut them off, He can cut you off. It says this partial, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So 1 Corinthians 10.1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's the warning here? Right, The church is reminded, beware of rebellion. Don't do what Israel did. Do not rebel against God. Especially in light of the fact that He has saved you. He has delivered you. He's brought you out of the house of slavery. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Right? So these are three things, apart from this Second Peter passage, that the church disregards at her peril. And we're warned against these things. And I, and I bring these up so that we see them all put together. Beware of pride. Beware of rebellion. Beware of not serving the body of Christ. 
And here in 2 Peter, simply beware of unbelief. Do not be unbelieving as these people who have departed from the assembly, who are making mockery of the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ to return in judgment and salvation. Do not be ignorant. Do not be unaware. Beloved. And then he says this, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Okay, so as we've noted, Peter is not seeking here to evade the challenge of these scoffers. So most of you are probably familiar with the debate that has existed concerning both of these passages. A lot has been made of this verse, verse 8. On one hand, it has been used of many prophecy pundits to somehow map out God's plan for the future. For instance, if this passage is thought to mean a future cosmic meltdown where everything is burnt to a crisp, the question comes, what is taking so long? It's been 2,000 years since Peter is writing this. Oh, but one day is like a 1,000 years, so it's only been really two days from God's perspective. I heard that laugh. Don't. <laughs> Another interesting one that comes up quite often is to map human history. Now, from the standpoint of, of young earth creationism, Right, if, if the world was, was created somewhere around 4,000 B.C., that's, that's four days from God's perspective, and it's been about 2,000 years, give or take, since, since, uh, since the first advent, so we have six days according to God's perspective. So what does that mean? We are about to enter a cosmic Sabbath rest because that seventh year is, is about to come any minute. And so there are a lot of people out there, especially Bible teachers, from a particular persuasion that will say, you see, this is surely a sign that any moment now, the Lord Jesus could return. So be ready. And of course, we're arguing from the standpoint that what Peter is saying, from our perspective, has already occurred. And we live in light of that victory. But that's, some of the, that's just a couple examples of what is taught regarding this. But I don't think this is what Peter is talking about. So, very quickly, what Peter is doing is quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. And that was part of our Scripture reading. So why don't you turn with me briefly to Psalm chapter 90. Because it's very, what's very important here, of course, is context. Why would Peter be quoting from Psalm chapter 90? So let's start at verse 2. He says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he's already, he's already teaching concerning God's eternal nature. Everlasting to everlasting. So verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. So you have, you have birth and death. You have the lives of men. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you have God who is everlasting. And though from our point of view, a lot of time has passed, to like, to God, from God's perspective, it was sort of like yesterday. He doesn't feel or experience time as we do. Notice how Peter repeats this, as the psalmist does. 
what this does is, is make an emphatic statement. A thousand years like a day, day is as a thousand years, and note that the day is not a thousand years. Peter doesn't say the day is a thousand years. He's not making a prophetic equivocation so that we say, oh, right, so if a thousand years has gone by, we take that to mean one day, literally. He's saying it is as a thousand years. Think of it this way. When Jesus said He would be in the tomb for three days and three nights, He wasn't going to be in the tomb for 3,000 years. thought I'd throw that in there. Consider it this way. Though God works in real time in His church through the Holy Spirit, He is not bound by time as we are. He is Lord over time. He's able to operate outside of time, not be constrained by it. That is simply to say God does not view time as we do it, as we do. So in the context of these churches, they say, wow, time is almost up. A lot of time has, has, has gone by since this prophecy was uttered. What are we going to do? And Peter says, you guys need to relax. Do not be unbelieving. Right? From God's perspective, right? barely any time has passed. God has, that is to say, all the time He needs to accomplish His purposes, and that God will stick with His timeline and will not fail to judge. So what we perceive as a long time in the mind of God, barely any time has passed. Because God has eternal power. He has all the time, so to speak, as He needs. So when we think He is delayed, when we are sort of in a hurry, when we become impatient to see God execute His plan and come through as He said He will, He is operating exactly on schedule. He arrives exactly when He intends to. So this apparent delay weighs on the church in a way that it does not weigh on God. God is perfectly, and shall we say effortlessly, in charge of His timeline. See, that just takes the complication out of it. We don't have to use this to decode some kind of prophetic language. He's simply reminding them, though the Lord seems to delay, He he has a good grip on the timeline. And just because He may delay from your perspective, now listen to this, He may delay from your perspective, but that does not mean He is late. does not mean He is late at all. all. Look look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. So what is the promise? It's the very promise we've already reviewed. It's the promise of the Lord coming in judgment. It's this very promise that's being scoffed at in the opening verses of this chapter. It's the same promise that's being disbelieved. And this challenge is being made regarding the coming of Christ. And all this time is going by. All this time is going by. So if you were living in that time, as we've already talked about, what would you think? Right, This timeline now sits on a razor's edge. The apostles are dying most of whom are being executed brutally, what does the church do? The same thing that the people of God have always done. Hear the Word of God, believe it, and obey it. Trust in what the Lord says, not in what men say. You may recall the words of the psalmist, this question, has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise come to an end forever? believe the church feels that pressure as well. Especially in view of a timed prophetic utterance from Christ Himself. 
What is happening? And yet we find that another promise springs up. It is a promise that Christ's own, that the elect of the Father will not perish. It is a promise of salvation. So you have this, you have two perspectives here. On one hand, yes, prayer for God to come and avenge His people, to deliver them from the hand of their persecutors. Yes, that is a desire, that is a prayer. That's going to happen still. It just hasn't happened yet from Peter's perspective, but it will. But there's another reason. And this is where God's perspective comes in. Is that He is using this time, this supposed delay, to save. That's why Peter goes on. He's not slow about His promise as some count slowness. This goes back to our carnal perspective. Slowness can be a matter of very subjective perspective. Some of you, for some of you, slow could be five minutes. Slow could be a week. It really all depends on our situation. And it depends on the tyranny of the urgent. It can depend on the strength of our desire to see such a thing come to pass. Right? So when you tell your kids to pick up after themselves and to clean their room for goodness sakes, what's slowness? Five seconds. Clean your room. Right? What is taking so long? Right? <laughs> not last week, not tomorrow, now. See? It's objective. But that's human perspective. Depending on who you are, the timeline changes, but from God's perspective, things are scheduled perfectly. But some do count slowness from the Lord. But we are notoriously impatient. We want things, we want them now. And you could even imagine that perhaps some of the, the churches in this time, we even share this disposition in our own time. We, we, we want to ask the Lord like James and John, Lord, we see all this, all this unbelief, all this mockery. Can we please call down lightning to consume our adversaries so they don't scoff at you anymore? We, we, we miss the patience of God in all of these things, unfortunately. We don't have God's perspective. We don't have His patience. We look at God even now as, they, as the churches did then, no doubt, and we think God is slow. Think about the various things and the, even, even the Scriptures that seem to take a long time to come about. How about Noah and the flood? We've talked about that a lot. 120 years. Really, 969 since Methuselah's lifetime was actually the clock. How about Abraham and Sarah? The promise was given, and then several years went by. Where's my son? Where's my son? Where's my son? To the point where even Sarah laughs. Shall this happen when I am old? Shall I have the pleasure? Think about the, the, the top example. What about the birth of Jesus? Boy, the, the, the desire of nations. You, you, can just, you, can, you can see it in the text that Israel is just longing for the Messiah, longing for the Redeemer. But He's not here. When is He coming? The time, is, it's like the, the, the time just seemed ripe for the Messiah to arrive on the scene. And set the, set the captives free. Consider Luke 2.25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. I tell you, he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one. Many were just agonizing inside, looking for God to send a deliverer. When, O oh Lord, will you send the Christ? When will he come? That we would have that kind of 
desire that for Christ to be revealed in our own midst with such power and with such glory. But listen, Galatians 4.4 gives God's perspective. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What? The fullness of time. What's the fullness of time? Right when God planned to send the Son. That's all. That's the fullness of time. The right time. When's the right time? When God says so. And so He does it. No different then than what, than what Peter is describing. Even Jesus assures His people in Luke 18.7, Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night, and will He delay long over them? We see the same agonizing in the, even in the book of Revelation. How long, O Lord? Right? How long? When will You avenge us? When will You deliver us? And even Jesus says, will He delay long over them? See, from God's perspective, it's not a delay. It's perfect timing, but from our perspective, holy moly, we just barely have the patience to wait for the Lord to do what He says He is going to do. And yet, He will do it in His own time. It's like we feel the same way today, right? We see, we see all the things that seem so wrong with this world. And if we, and if we have a, a more futurist view of this text, we want Christ to come back and take us away. We want Christ to come back and execute judgment over all these apostate people ruining these institutions that God gave as a good thing. I mean, think of it. What are the things we cry about daily? Oh, we've got a Democrat in the White House. Oh, the Democrats are running the House and the Senate. Oh, we've got CRT being taught in our public schools. The problem in and of itself. Oh, we've got these forced vaccinations sexual grooming in our schools. We have Marxists in our high courts. We have unjust abortion laws in our own state encouraging child sacrifice on demand. Oh, and not to mention, we have Klaus Schwab and his globalist goons who want to subjugate us all. Right? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That, that one was more for you conspiracy people. But I mean, it's, it's easy to see something to fret about. It's so easy. And yet, from God's perspective, what is happening is that God is simply being patient. I would say in in, in a wider sense, in a broader sense, we see His patience. But even back then, from Peter's very viewpoint, the context in which he is writing, God's patience is being put on display. Realize that patience is a hallmark of God's revealed character. When He walks before Moses, as we see described in Exodus 34, I think it's 34, what is it? when His goodness passes by, He declares His name, right? The Lord, the Lord. And He starts describing Himself. And He says, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. It's one of the first things God reveals about Himself. Slow to anger. Right? Most of us aren't slow to anger. <laughs> we are so unlike God, tragically, in that regard. That we would be slow to anger. But that's what God reveals of Himself. And God's character does not change. So even here we see He is slow to anger. It's one of the occasions that Paul is warning uh, those those in the Roman church. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? But instead of 
instead of latching on to Christ and His grace, you are abusing His patience, and in so doing, you are heaping up wrath upon yourself. God's patience is not to be abused. Even Peter in 1 Peter 3.20 talks about the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Peter will say in verse 15 of this chapter, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's why we bring up salvation as this theme. If God is being patient, rest assured that He is saving someone. And as long as He is patient, His saving, his saving efforts continue. See, we live, we live in light of this very thing. Even though we may pray for God to judge, we may do it daily. We're sick of seeing all this stuff. I realize it weighs on our hearts. We're tired of seeing men rebel against a good God who saves men and who has all right to rule. We don't like that. And yet, what is our great consolation? What is our great encouragement? Is that, the, is that God has, has saved I mean, imagine if God's patience expired before He saved little old you. You would be condemned, and yet His patience keeps going so that people are saved, so that people repent and turn to Him. Think about that. We might mistakenly think that God is being patient with unbelievers. But imagine also how patient He is with you. He is patient with you. You who He intends to save. If God were not patient, no one would be saved. That's exactly why Peter says what he says here. Don't see the Lord as delaying. Don't see the Lord as failing to keep His Word. In the same sense, in the same way that the Lord waited for Methuselah to die after those 969 years, so He is waiting basically for the end of this generation. We're getting to the tail end of it. He is patient before He judges. And He says this, He desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is patient toward you. And what comes out of that? His patience is expressed in a wish that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Now, I think we have time to get through this passage, but this is another verse similar to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 1 about denying the Master who bought them. This verse is often seen as a Calvinist killer. Right? It undermines our view of the doctrines of grace. But this is where context is very key, so let's walk through it. One, one way that this verse is viewed is this, is that God really does want all to be saved. That all really means all exhaustively. So, of course, Christ dies for all, so it's, it's either universalism and no one is condemned, or it actually means that it is up to man's free will to decide. That's kind of the rub there, right? Christ desires all people to be saved. He died for everyone. That means... He did not die only for His elect. He did not die only for His sheep. And so, of course, that leaves it up to man's free will. So we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. That that critique of man's free will is for another day. But let us understand what Peter is actually saying here. On one hand, we understand that Christ's death actually is for sin. We read that in 1 Peter. He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we being dead might live under righteousness. Being dead to sin might live under righteousness 
for by his stripes we were healed. That is to say that Christ's crucifixion actually accomplished the salvation of people, right? It didn't make us savable, it actually saved us. Christ actually died for sin in the place of sinners, the just for the unjust. Secondly, Christ's death is actually for his sheep. We find in the Gospel of John that the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. So we can come to this verse and and have a very specific view of the atonement in mind. And it's a shame we can't explore some more passages and some some of the, 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 the more specific theology of this. But we want to establish that Christ actually died for sinners and he laid down his life for his flock. You listen to, uh, there's a good commentary by R.C. Sproul when he talks about the will, the will of the Lord. He talks about a will of disposition, meaning that, of course, the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked. He doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. So what's in view here? If, this, if the grace in view here, the salvation in, in view here means all, and that means every person exhaustively, that does mean that every person will be saved. So what that means, very importantly, is that our understanding of this passage hinges on our interpretation and understanding of the word all, right? Does all mean all, all the time? (laughs) Is all, all, all means, is the question. Matthew 3, 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Does that mean every single person exhaustively in Judea went out to see Jesus or John the Baptist? Probably not. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Is Jesus saying that we will be hated by all exhaustively without exception? No, we'll, you'll be hated by all kinds of people, is what it means. Not exhaustive. Consider John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, clearly some of the world does not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. So that can't mean all exhaustively. That's why context, friends, is so important, especially with verses like this. Romans 11.32, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. So who is the mercy on all in this context? That is, it's limited to Jews and Gentiles who are part of this remnant chosen by grace from Romans 11.5. And of course, the elect from Romans 11.7. So we have to understand all within its context. It doesn't always mean everything exhaustively without exception. Sometimes it does, but this is where context helps us. We know that the Lord desires men to be saved. Isaiah 30.18 says this, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high. There's the patience of God again. Waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all who long for Him. Okay, so who are the all? Right? Let's listen, let's look at this passage very carefully. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Who's he talking to? Beloved. He's not talking to every person exhaustively in the history of mankind. He's talking to the beloved. And then he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's you? The beloved. Not wishing for any, who's any? The you, who's you? The beloved. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So who is all? 
It's the any. And who's the any? You. And who's you? The beloved. So what is happening in here and how Peter is encouraging the flock, he's saying, the Lord may seem to delay in His parousia, His coming in judgment, but note this, that means that He is saving people in this interval of time. It may seem like a delay to you, but the Lord is executing His salvation work amongst Jew and Gentile. He is saving the Beloved. And as we know, He will lose not one. He will not fail to save to the uttermost all who the Father has given to Him. God is patient, waiting for men to repent before He judges. So in the immediate sense, there is this remnant to be saved so that way they will escape the impending judgment on Jerusalem. It's like this way, this way, this way, this way. Come here, be saved. Repent, believe, be saved. Escape the wrath to come. Now, in our context, our modern context, why, why, why the perceived delay? Because Christ is still saving people. We are still proclaiming the Gospel. And so if we could only have God's perspective on this, I think that as much as we desire Him to come and execute judgment, savage judgment, on, on, on those who do not believe Him, it is a great benefit for us to consider this today and ask the Lord to give us a godly kind of patience and a godly kind of compassion so that we also desire unbelievers to be saved. It's not a contradiction to, say, to pray for both salvation and judgment. Of course we pray, we pray for those in political office. We pray that they would repent and stop enacting godless legislation. Of course we pray for their salvation. However, we also pray that if they do not repent, that the Lord will remove them from office and replace them with just legislators who love and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're not mutually exclusive. We pray for both. But I think sometimes we sacrifice compassion and patience and the desire for the salvation of unbelievers because we are so exhausted by all the evil we see. And I'm trying to encourage you, think upon the patience of God toward you and do not be exhausted. Do not be, ex- do not be exasperated by what you see. Rather, see it as an opportunity for God to continue His saving work. And specifically, see it as an opportunity for God to continue His saving work and use you as an instrument. Don't count yourself out of it because you're so discouraged by all the evil you see. God notices. God knows what's going on. And as we've already heard, He is not constrained by time and knowledge as you are. So surrender to His wisdom Ask for Him to fill you with patience so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. I know there is so much that we can think of to be discouraged, but rather be, to be discouraged about, but rather be encouraged that the Lord is patient. He's patient toward you, and He continues to be patient toward His elect, and we know that He has many more, perhaps millions, perhaps billions more, that He is going to save And He is going to use His church to do it. So if you even think of checking out, repent. The Lord has use for you. So instead of looking only for Christ's second coming to make all of this go away and only desiring their judgment, cry out with equal fervor for their repentance. And don't let this escape your notice. God's justice 
is just as satisfied in the repentance of a sinner than their condemnation. Think of it that way. If someone comes to Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Isn't that what you wanted? Well, it happens when someone repents and believes the gospel. So that is exactly what we should be praying for. And use Peter's words as encouragement to know beyond all doubt that as much as Christ promises to judge, He also has power to save. And He delays His judgment so that He will continue to save. And I would pray that that is something that we joyfully and excitedly pray to be a part of. Because it continues. Don't be discouraged and pray for the repentance of those who do not yet know Christ. Consider that Christ here has already fulfilled Peter's words. He has returned. He has been faithful to judge. And now He continues to judge the present old creation by ushering forth the new creation, the new heavens and new earth through the proclamation of the Gospel. Do not let that escape your notice, beloved. Next time we'll talk more about this new heavens and new earth. Let's pray. Father, thank You again uh, for Your love and goodness. Thank You for this passage. We thank You that we can rejoice in the salvation not only of ourselves, but the salvation of all who You claim, all whom You choose to bring to Yourself. That we can look at this and see that Your salvation is deliberate, it is flawless, it's perfectly executed. You lose not one of Your sheep. And that even in our own time, Lord, just as the churches to whom Peter is writing this letter, we have no reason to be discouraged though You tarry. We understand that You have not yet handed over the Kingdom to the Father. And as long as You as long as you tarry, as long as you, from our perspective, delay that action, we know that You are saving people. You are bringing them to life through Your Son. You are transferring them from death to life, from old to new, from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Your beloved Son. And I pray that the joys of being instrumental in that as Your Spirit empowers us would not escape our notice. Because that above all would be to be stupid on purpose should we be willfully ignorant of Your desire to save. That, you, that Your compassion extends throughout the centuries. It abounds so clearly, Lord, that You save not only sinners, but You save the worst of sinners. Those who would so, be so unlikely to come to You. And yet You save them profoundly and to the uttermost by bringing them in to be partakers of Your Son. So Lord, may that not be lost on us. Though we cry for Your justice, though we cry for deliverance, even as those saints did in the first century, we also cry for Your patience. We cry for Your salvation to visit our midst that we may see people come to You to confess Christ and to see Your sovereign grace go to work. How, how sad we would be if we did not witness that. Help us not to be slack. Help us not to be careless. Help us not to be hard of heart toward those who are unbelieving. Um, but fill us with the compassion of Christ to speak the Word of grace to them that they may be saved. And that You will be faithful to do Your work 
upon those you choose to grant salvation. We can commit all this to you with joyful hearts and by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.